I think we should concentrate here. All the roads converge just east of this gap, and this junction will be very necessary. Yes, sir. I left my spectacles over there. What is the name of this town? Gettysburg. Farewell. Episode 19 of Man Cave Movie Reviews, the podcast where we review the good, the bad, and the ugly of movies for men. Today we're going to be talking about Gettysburg, a 1993 Ted Turner film, which is one of our all personal favorites. I am your host, Steve Michaels, and joining me in this great review is my good and dear friend, Mark. I was once a staff officer for a corps commander and had nothing else to do but stand doing nothing and striking dramatic poses looking off into the distance slower. <laughs> and I did that just for you because I know I know what you because you know the scene I'm talking about. Oh, many. Sirs, perhaps there are those among you who believe you are descended from an ape. I suppose there may even be those among you who believe that I am descended from an ape. But I challenge the man to step forward who believes that Jeff Muncie is descended from an ape. An orangutan, perhaps, but not an ape. I am enough of a dragger. Chimpanzee, maybe. Nice. Very nice. Like it. <laughs> I don't know where we go from here. I, I'm done. I just, I'm done. That was, that was great. You know, I, I thought there was going to be another line, but boy, you had me going with that one. All right. And also joining us. <laughs> and take two. Uh, take two. Also joining us is our other good and dear friend, Jeff. Does my face make this beard look fake? Muncie. <laughs> Golf clap. I think he's dead. I think I killed. <laughs> you it does killed him. Slumped off. Yeah, he did. I didn't hear a thud, so I think he's all right. There he is. You killed a co-host. Only took nineteen episodes. <laughs> oh my god. I don't. I don't even know how to follow that one up either. <laughs> well, <clears throat> thank you. I'm uh, freshly back from my trip to Tennessee, where in fact I did see a giant monster stomping across Nashville. Um, I got it on. I've got it on film. Um, but after replaying it um, and noticing that I was in a driving rainstorm, and apparently I was moving the camera around, um, you can almost clearly see the giant 50-story monster destroying Nashville. Except for some reason, none of the uh, none of the buildings were destroyed in any fashion, and um, I dropped my phone in the toilet, and I don't have anything to back up my story with. All right, we'll buy that. And welcoming back our special guest commentator, Ken, it's only an arm, Roni. Well, you know, I was going to be all prepared and have all the technical details worked out before I tried to log on tonight. But as you all know from watching a movie, when it comes to stressful situations, there just is no time. There is no time. <laughs> well done. Love it. Great. All right, folks, we are going to be talking about Gettysburg. Uh, we're doing this basically in commemoration for the 4th of July because this battle was fought over um, at least one day of the 4th of July. The movie was made back in 1993. Uh, it's a Ted Turner movie, and actually Ted Turner is in it for a brief uh, part where he dies gloriously against a, uh, a wood fence. 
definitely what you would refer to as an ensemble cast. I mean, this is almost a definition of an ensemble cast. You've got uh, Tom Berenger, Martin Sheen, Jeff Daniels, uh, James Lancaster, James Patrick Stewart, Stephen Lang, who we have seen before. Uh, he played Ike Turner in, did I just say Ike Turner? <laughs> yes, you did. Christ. Yes, you did. I, so he, uh, he played an angry man with a guitar singing. Man. <laughs> Rolling who beat down his, a river. Who beat his female singer wife. Yeah, that would Rolling. make sense. She's female and a wife. Yeah. Rolling. No, actually, what I meant to say was uh, Stephen Lane played Ike Clanton in Tombstone, and we saw him there. If anybody has seen Tombstone and seen this movie, Stephen Lane, you almost don't recognize him in Tombstone. He looks so different. But uh, a great performance by him in this. A lot of other great actors in this. Uh, we're talking Sam Elliott, Jeff Daniels, who played uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who, uh, geez, spit an image of Chamberlain. Uh, what is really nice about this movie in the very beginning, they do kind of a uh, montage of different uh, pictures of the actual people that are in the movie, and then they kind of compare it to the actor that played them. I have to say, Jeff Daniels, it was actually eerie to look at the actual picture of Joshua Chamberlain and then look at Jeff Daniels. Uh, a little creepy, because uh, Chamberlain looked exactly like him. There's actually one person that I was looking through the cast, and I was uh, I was shocked when I saw it, and I never picked it up, but the guy that played Brigadier General Johnston Pettigrew. Did you see who that was? Never George Lazenby. George Lazenby, the, uh, he played James Bond in, uh, in Her Majesty's Secret Service. Never picked it up. You know what? I'm going to get this one out of the way right now because we don't get to do it very often, although we'll do it in some other movies. But uh, I'm already I'm already doing our B5 reference, guys. This one's pretty easy. Are you serious? You know this one? Yeah, Morgan Shepard. <sighs> All right. All right. Martin Sheen. I thought I was going to. Huh? Who'd you Martin say? Sheen. Martin Sheen was on B5. Yes, he was. River of Souls, the movie. He was on the B5 movie, River of Souls. Oh, wow. You know what? I never watched that one. And I've got one more for you. Uh Uh-oh. James Patrick Stewart, who played Porter Alexander. He was a presidential aide in the movie In the Beginning. Yes. Okay. You know what? I'm done. I quit. I just got showed up. I thought I had something special. Pwned. I just got pwned. Got pwned. All right. Very good. Very good. Nice. Very well done. Very well done. All right. Moving on. Uh, Essentially, this movie uh, was, uh, again, like I said, made in 1993. Uh, Both Mark and I uh, in our past lives were civil reenactors. Mark, much longer than I was. But uh, I think, Mark, you'll you'll pretty much agree that this was the movie that uh, was the the adrenaline shot in the heart of the civil reenacting community, wouldn't you say? Between this and Glory, they, those two, but especially Gettysburg, they brought the reenacting uh, hobby into the mainstream, as it were. Absolutely. And you could not go to Gettysburg for years after the movie, and still not without hearing the music and seeing posters and whatnot all over. But yeah, it did, it did take the um, hobby mainstream as much as possible for a hobby that we were in that's not cheap and is a little unique right yeah it's definitely not a um um it's about as about as expensive as golf if you're going to be a a decent golfer but um 
uh, or spent a lot of time golfing, but it, it, it's not a cheap hobby. Uh, it's a lot of fun though. Uh, if you're into the history and into uh, playing soldier for a weekend, uh, during the summer dressed in wool. Yep. We wore wool, real wool. Uh, interesting thing about this movie is that other than the actors that were in the movie and the stunt people, there were 13,000 civil reenactors in this movie. One of whom unfortunately passed away during the movie, actually died shortly after the movie was over, uh, had a heart attack during, um, one of the scenes. Uh, but, um, uh, and it does happen. I mean, there's, there's been some times that we've been out there and it's been hot. I mean, real hot and not everybody is in the greatest of shape in the world. So, uh, it was, it was pretty impressive, especially you could tell, uh, who the reenactors, uh, uh, were out there versus the, uh, the stunt guys. And, uh, you know, I thought it was, and to be honest with you, I thought they did a really good job. It was really hard to tell who the, uh, who the stunt guys were and who the reenactors were. Uh, but overall, uh, they did a really good job in, um, uh, portraying. I, I thought the, I thought the Rebs looked really good. I mean, in terms of just how they were dressed. Uh, I mean, that's one thing when we were looking at it, it's like, if you played the union, you know, it was hard to stand out because, uh, you know, everybody was, you know, you were either wearing a, you know, either wearing your farmer's hat or you're wearing a Kepi, or if you were iron brigade or regular, you had a hardy hat, but, uh, pretty much everybody else on the Confederate side, you pretty much wore what you went out and, um, worked on the farm. in. so, uh, those guys look pretty good. I have to admit they, they really did look well. Uh, again, this is a favorite movie of, of ours. Uh, we really love it. I've got, uh, I've got some things to say, uh, later on about it, but I want to, I want to pass the torch over to my, uh, good and dear friend staff, uh, staff officer who has nothing else to do slover. Get some, get some thoughts from him. And he may actually expound on that, uh, that little, uh, thing that I did about the opening scene. Cause, uh, it's just, uh, actually Mark, you know what, well, why don't you explain to the audience, uh, why I, I put that out there because uh, talk about the scene and talk about how it was to be an officer in reenacting and why nobody wanted your job. <laughs> um, if you watch the movie, and I know we'll all comment on it, and we've got Ken's grinning about this, there are preening posing staff officers in every scene where you see Lee or Longstreet. They have nothing better to do than pose. And if, if you had a staff in the Civil War, you were they better be busy other than standing there and smoking a cigar and looking off into the distance and posturing. And besides that, <clears throat> Steve knows I played a company, I played a line officer, which meant I actually worked. Death, as Joe Spangler, a good friend of ours, would say, death to all staff toadies, because staff officers have one thing to do, and that's just to make the line officers and the, and the troops' lives miserable, because they don't know what else they're supposed to do. But just be annoying. It, it's a credit to Ted Turner. I'm not a big Ted Turner fan on a number of levels, but this was a labor of love for him, and he was able to rally a lot of reenactors to give up a lot of their time because they had trouble shooting this movie with they had some very inclement weather, a lot of rain. They had to work around um, to, to show up with not only their kit, and if you're an infantryman, that's pretty easy, but all those guns, all those artillery pieces, those are privately owned. All those horses, those are privately owned. So those guys are showing up with horses, guns, and it's their own money. I mean, they're not getting paid for this. They might get food. They might have paid them for food and bought them lunch probably in gave, the commissary. Probably gave them a per diem or some type. But yeah, 
that's a credit to the hobby at its peak that it really wanted to get behind this movie and make it successful. There are things that we all roll our eyes about. I mean, you know, Santa Reb early on in the movie. Uh, and everybody knows Santa Reb. You're coming through my picket line. That is the most well-fed Reb. He must have raided every commissary and barn yep. from Virginia to Pennsylvania. Uh, Armies at this point in time in the 1860s, you marched everywhere. I mean, you it was nothing to do 20, 30-mile marches a day. That was just standard. Uh, you don't look like this guy marching 30 miles a day. I've been laughing since the beginning of this podcast. I can't stop. But I, I picture saying a rib, and it seems like his hat is like two sizes too small. Well, you got this large man with a big bushy beard, and his hat just seems to be too small for his head. Well, he's a pinhead. Oh, it's 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 glorious. You could tell who some of the reenactors were in this movie because they couldn't act to save their life. Clearly, was one of them. Right. One of the things I used to joke about this movie, and I made reference to it when I talked about Jeff and the fake beards, is that you have some people who have just ridiculously looking fake beards. Um, and Tom Berenger, who plays uh, James Longstreet, is is probably, I think between him and C. Thomas Howell, had the worst beards. And then you look at, oh gosh, uh, Jeff Daniels, who played Chamberlain. That was real. It was a real beard. In fact, I don't think Chamberlain shaved at all because he even had, you know, the neck thing going, the neck beard and everything. I mean, he just looked grimy and dirty. He really looked like he'd been in the field, you know, for months without really shaving. And it looked great. And then you look at guys like Tom Berenger and you're like, geez, man, it looks like one of those beards that have the hook that you put around your ears. It's just <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah, but yeah, later on, you kind of get used to it, but, you know, and then you see some guys who have a good beard. Now, I don't know, did Martin Sheen have a real beard? Because that looked... No. That no. was fake? That was fake. Man, that looked good, though. That was fake. The yeah. best beard, the best beard in that movie is Ellis Spears. He has the most awesome chin whiskers, because mm -hmm. it's a perfect period beard and mustache, because it just hangs down off his chin. That's the best period beard of anybody out there. Now, who is that? Ellis? Ellis Spears. He's the captain. He Chamberlain's captain. Yeah. Oh, Chamberlain's captain. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Awesome. Now, I did read where um, C. Thomas Howell, he actually had to go with the fake beard because they said, <laughs> they said because he was playing uh, Tom Chamberlain, they said he could not grow it fast enough for the movie. I mean, that wasn't a beard. That was like something that started at the sideburns, came down and curved around the upper part of your lip. You know what? It would take me three years to grow that, especially and, as thick as that was. I'm like, and, you know, and who thought that looked good even then? That just. <laughs> I see guys with that look now. He's got to hang. You're not hanging out in the right neighborhoods. Wow. <laughs> it, it was. I mean, you have to. And then when I'm thinking about, you know, Behringer, it's like he had to have half his dinner was like in that beard by the end of the night. Why did they even think that was cool? I don't know. But, but anyway, moving Well, because moving when on. you look when you look at pictures of Longstreet. He had a giant, giant. well-manicured beard. It was. Manicured. Yeah, that's right. Well-groomed beard. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, they, they were big on uh, the facial hair back then. But um, uh, but you're right, you're right, Mark. Um, Ellis did have, a, he actually did have a really good one. And um, now, was he an actor or was he a reenactor? Yes. No, I looked it up. He's an actor. He's he is an actor. an actor. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, the other thing that you pointed out was uniforms. The reenactors' uniforms, by and large, 
there's some stuff that I kind of cringe at, but you got to know what you're looking at. But by and large, they look really good. The the actors who are playing officers, those are fresh off the rack uniforms. And even there's a great bit where Sam Elliott um, said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to wear this uniform in the manner in which it is presented to me. And he went and weathered it. He asked the... He asked the costume guys and marine actors, how do I properly weather it? And he took it to his hotel bathroom and weathered that uniform. It, it looks like he's been in the saddle in that uniform for six months. Yeah, it does. His looks really good. Uh, yeah, Tom uh, – Tom Barrier. Uh, Sam Elliott uh, plays um, Buford, who um, pretty much – I don't know. A lot of people will talk about uh, the Battle of Gettysburg first day. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that uh, – um, John Buford pretty much saved the day there, holding off, you know, the Confederate advance till Reynolds Corps got up online. Um, you know, even though that they got drove back, um, he did hold off, uh, you know, Heath's division before they were able to uh, get past the town uh, and grab the, the high ground. So I, I don't know. I mean, we've talked about that before, Mark. I mean, I think Buford really was a savior of the day. There were a lot of there were a lot of heroes in this movie. Uh, throughout the course of the day, but you know, Buford was basically the first uh, Union uh, force that was there at the time, and to put those guys up against uh, infantry, that was that was pretty impressive. Yeah, but what would now Buford's guys? They had the they had Spencers, didn't they at that time? They did not have Spencers. They had Sharps or Sharps. Burnsides. Yeah, but still, they were breech loading carbines right. versus muzzle loading. You'll see in the movie a couple times. You'll see some. Some guys with uh, Enfields or Springfield rifles, because you can tell they didn't have enough. They didn't have enough cavalry, right? Reenactors, and you'll catch some guys loading muskets um, if you watch it closely enough. Buford, a real quick aside, where I live, Buford was born in Woodford County, where I live, and there's a um, there's a plaque near downtown um, recognizing him. So he was born here, where I where I currently reside in Bourbon Country. Cool. Oh, yeah, I did not nice. know that. I didn't know Buford yeah. was in there. I said he comes to horses naturally. Yes. I did comment just on how those scenes where that action is taking place do, to me, have a different feel from the rest of the movie battle scenes. It's more of a wide-open maneuver, not a lot of people out there. It just feels different as because the battle is just starting. As things go on, by the time you move on to the, the later scenes, it's, you know, thousands of men and dozens of guns. Uh, but at that point, it was relatively small numbers in a desperate battle on both sides. Right. It is what it was. It was a meeting engagement. Um, and as the battle progresses, it's not necessarily a meeting engagement. It is a the Union playing defense and the, the Confederates attacking. So it is different because it's it um, you know we haven't fully established our our lines per se, and it and going back to what uh, what Steve or Mark opened up with there was, um, you know had Buford not been the speed bump here, um, the Confederates would have taken the high ground here of Cemetery Ridge and Cemetery Hill, and the battle would have been completely different and may have may we may have the Confederate Confederate States of America to this day. Now, Sam Elliott does a good job in his role. Of- you know, having that little uh, monologue of saying, you know, what will happen if we don't hold here? What, you know, putting out how the battle will be lost unless we hold. And I, I thought that was a really effective use of spending just a little bit of screen time 
to really put the audience into a better understanding of why are they doing this. I mean, so often in, you know, battle-type movies, you know, the battle is just going on. The viewer doesn't know. I mean, the viewer just knows, hey, there's a battle, you know, it happened. Well, this puts you in a context of why are we really fighting here? Well, they really made this movie they, – they made this movie for – for your average Joe, that was their intent, and and there's yes. so there's a lot of parts throughout this movie. It it is narration to let you know either motivations um, or causes in the case of you know why we're here and why we're fighting this war to begin with, which I think they do a fairly decent job of not trying to linger on those causes too long, and they try to bring you know you know the, the several different angles to um, you know to the forefront. They don't labor on them, and they, they don't they, they don't bring you know they don't say which side is right and which side was wrong. It's just here here are the here are the here are the differing views. This is why we're here. This is how the battle. This is why the war is happening, and um, I th- I think they do justice to that in the movie. And Jeff, to dovetail onto what you said, I think some of the best scenes in the movies are those quiet uh, few actors having a back-and-forth commentary. You know, the scene with Buster and Chamberlain talking about um, slaves and the issue of slavery. That's a great scene. The the Armistead, Pat, the Armistead uh, Kemper, Pickett, Longstreet scenes, some of those those expository scenes or with Lee, those are some of the best, those are some of the best parts of the entire movie to me. It's not the action per se. And you know what, Mark, I'm going to, dovetail on that real quick because there is another part um and that's a good point that you brought up jeff they did not dwell on the cause that each side had but one thing that they did do and i thought was very well done in the movie and they did it on both sides uh and like you said mark you know the 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 scenes the one-on-one scenes with uh, certain actors and the one that i thought was very touching or kind of the heartstring pull was when Armistead is talking to Longstreet and that's Richard Jordan and Tom Berenger and Armistead is is very good friends with um, Hancock who is the commander of second corps for the Union side you know and he said it was it was him and Reynolds and Hancock who all came up together through the Mexican War they're very close friends and now they're on opposite sides and and Longstreet makes a comment. He goes, "Well, I heard he's, you know, Hancock's over on the other side over there." And, and you and you could see where where Jordan's like, "Whoa, gosh, I, you know, I'd really like to go talk to him sometime." Oh, geez, that would be, you know. And you could see where he's kind of leading up to the whole thing, like, you know, it would really be nice if I could, you know, see him one more time. And you could see Longstreet just said, "You know, if you're close and you see him, send over a flag of truce and go talk to him." You know, and Jordan's like. You wouldn't mind. That wouldn't be. I mean, because you could just see this is like his best friend, and you and that really kind of tied in as to how, you know, how terrible this particular was. Because when they talk about it, it was a war of brothers. It may not have been brothers when there was. There were you had brothers that fought on both sides, but you had friends that were so close that they had a very difficult time realizing that they could have. They had to fight each other, but your loyalty to your state versus, you know, anything else that superseded. And I thought that was a really important scene, and you saw the same thing when uh, when Hancock was talking to Buford. I don't know if you agree with this, but there there is that scene in the tent with Longstreet where he said, 
Um, you know, he, he told, you know, Winnie Scott, uh, if, if he ever, you know, raised his hand against him that, you know, you know, you know, he wanted God to strike him down. And in, in a sense, he did raise his hand against, um, Winfield Scott when he was, you know, in Pickett's charge and he was stricken down. And I, I always thought that was a very, very interesting line in the movie to put in there. In the end, that's exactly what happened. I mean, he was stricken down when he raised his hand against his 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 old friend. Right. And it, it, it was uh, I thought that was well done, and 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 it was a narration to highlight these were people that went to school together um, through the military academies that were neighbors, that were friends, that you know were in other campaigns out in the West together, and this was not something that they that they took lightly and then this is not something that they chose but it did highlight the importance of states and it was the united states of america virginia was its own country yeah it had allegiance to the south but you know what it was virginia and it was that was the most important thing to them was the state of virginia forget everything else you can't tell my state or me and because my state has chosen to go this route, I am going to side with the state, uh, and and I'm going to fight for whatever cause the state is choosing in this case. I thought the movie also did a good job, again, with these little scenes interspersed between the action where they showed various characters interacting and you know where they fit in, what their attitudes were. But I can remember, and when I was reading up a little bit to get ready for tonight, but I remember even back then, even though it was like 20 years ago, that there were uh, critics and other people writing about this movie, making the case that it was basically Confederate propaganda. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with it at all. No. I thought it's a very even-handed view of what's going on. And they showed basically where the Confederates were coming from and where the Union was coming from. And... I think it's safe to say that most, I mean, once you get past Gone with the Wind and those movies back in the 30s and 40s, most Hollywood movies since the 60s and all, if they touch on the Civil War, I mean, the South is the bad guys. You know, I don't want to go into all the politics, but I thought this one did a good job of being fairly even-handed to show, like, these are people, they grew up together, and they were put into this conflict. I, I, you got to give credit to the source material, and this the movie is based off of Michael Shera's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Killer Angels. Again, one of those books. If people haven't read it, they really should, because to your point, Ken, that's exactly how the book is written. He focuses on individuals: Longstreet, Pickett, Chamberlain, Armistead, and he has his chapters broken out that way to to give that presentation of I'm not choosing sides. I'm presenting what individuals made decisions to do based upon what their belief systems were. And when we reenacted, Steve and I always had to deal with this, especially dealing with uh, visitors, was don't judge people from the 19th century with late 20th century values. You are not doing yourself justice to learn, and you're certainly not doing them justice. These people had a different mindset, a different value system. And to Jeff's point, what's real interesting is when they talk about Virginia is my home, that was probably also one of the weaknesses of the Confederacy, is it was the Confederate states. So the states did not always pull together for the cause of the war. As a quick sidebar, 
there was one point where North Carolina had warehouses full of shoes, and the Confederacy always suffered from shoeless shoe issues for their men. And the governor of North Carolina said, unless they're going to North Carolina troops, you're not getting my shoes. You had the strengths and the weaknesses of that passion for states and states' rights. And I think they do a very good job of dealing with the slavery issue with the conversation between Kilrain and Chamberlain, and then also showing um, the John Henry, as they call him, the runaway. That's it. We dealt with it, and we move on. They didn't focus on every aspect of the Battle of Gettysburg. You know, they didn't go into the wheat field, the peach orchard, and uh, they, they, they focused on key storyline aspects of this movie because it it is a the movie about the yeah, Battle of Gettysburg, but it's also a movie about people. Um, just like Band of Brothers is, it's it is a story of Easy Company, but the series of the Band of Brothers was actually talking about the people with the setting of the world war ii this is about the people um and you know there there is the focus on really i think four people in this movie really longstreet chamberlain pickett and um well lee lee well lee is a pretty big part in the movie but i don't see i don't think you see him as much and towards the last half of the first part of the movie you don't see him that much he's important because he has to be there but you don't have that on the other side. Again, I think they chose wisely. You didn't have to show Meade and everything that he did just because he was the leader of the Union Army. You never – I mean, you saw Meade for about two minutes in the movie. Did but you, you didn't do. Did you that long? Was well, the- I, 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 I'm being generous with two minutes. Maybe it was a minute. Um, but it wasn't about – it was about the people that they, that they wanted to, to highlight. And, you know, obviously Chamberlain was one of them. Longstreet was the other one. And I really enjoyed the back and forth that they went through, it, not really tit for tat as much as it was it was showing you ev- events and the people and they spaced out sharing time with the Union for a little bit and then going over and showing you the Confederates. And, you know, the first half of the movie, people will say, is 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 more Union than Confederates. And the second half is more Confederates than Union. I, I feel they give fair time, and I liked how they, you know, you had the back and forth. You had the advancement of the story and the battle um, in, a, in a back and forth give and take. And, Jeff, to your point, I think that that's a credit to the director and the editing team, how well yeah. they took those scenes where they would end a scene and then move over to the other side. It would tie in very nicely to whatever they left off. They picked that up with the other perspective. The production of this movie is excellent. I mean, the way that they stage this movie, and it's a massive movie. It's it's what is it is it six hours? The original, this was originally supposed to be like a six hour miniseries. Okay, but it was really about a four four and a half hour movie. That's some significant pacing that you have to have, and they do a fantastic job of keeping the tension up and the back and forth. And you know, you would think with all the different actors and characters. Um, in the movie that you would get lost, but you don't because they do such a great job of 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 keeping it very uh, keeping a cohesive movie together, even though it's back and forth. And you're right, Mark. The way that they had puzzled pieced this together was was I think it's excellent. Yeah, and and you know I got to give Turner credit again. This originally was going to be a miniseries, and he took it to a theatrical release. Now it didn't do well in the box office. It only made 11 million. It, it cost them about $25 million, but they made it up in 
rentals and it has become an educational tool. And it has really been one of those movies, like other movies that we've talked about, that has done better out of theater than in theater. Yeah. Right. And, well, they this was 15 years in the making. Uh, they'd been trying to get this made. And every doorway it was, this will be an utter flop. Nobody will go and see this. And they were right. Nobody really went and saw this in the theaters. But it had a very limited, because it was a four-hour movie, it had limited engagements at the theaters because you could only show two of these per per um per screen in a day even that said they still cracked the top 10 um that week that it was released at the number 10 spot um and it brought in some money but you're right mark it wasn't until afterwards that and the and the dvd sales or the vhs sales and the dvd sales it really shined and it's first showing on um on cable at the time set a record at 25 million viewers who wow. turned in to watch it. So, I mean, it, it had caught on people, the word of mouth that I didn't get to go see it, uh, for, for whatever reason, I couldn't go see it during this time. I wanted to, um, so I couldn't, you know, I didn't add my money to the pool, but the word of mouth got out that when this finally hit TV, 25 million people, it set a record at that time for viewership of a of a movie on regular cable at 25 million people. That's, That's huge amazing. for cable. Yeah, that is yes. cable. That's huge for cable. And it's a testament well, and, for this movie. Yes. And I picked up I picked it up on Blu-ray because it is one of my favorites. It and Gods and Generals. We'll not, we'll not get into Gods and Generals. It's okay, but it's a step steps onto this movie and it's i really must say movie, though. it is it's a different, different movie it is a different you're right it is not focused on three days no it's not it's it it's a different movie and you can't i don't think you can compare the two i've i've gotten through guys and generals i went into it with a certain um opinion based on other people's opinions and i left their different opinion which was it was a it was a it was what it was and i thought it was a right. decent movie i don't think it was great but it's long and so that's why I don't put it in a lot. But right. it's it's a decent movie. Oh, and we have to give a shout-out real quick to, to our Hoosiers. Yep. One of the re- the Confederates did run a probe up to um, Culp's Hill that night. And a shout-out to the 7th Indiana Infantry. They yep. captured the um, they captured the scouting force and chased them off, chased the rest of them off. Yep. 7th Indiana is responsible for holding Culp's Hill, for denying Culp's Hill to our Hoosier brethren. Amen and thank you. Yep. Very good. Very good. Nice. Yeah. Uh, if it wasn't for them, the battle would have been lost. Wow. <laughs> Possibly. I wouldn't go that far. but Possibly. Uh, I have a question for you guys, which I was thinking about when I was, you know, getting ready. And that is, you know, this came out in 93. Glory came out, I believe, in 89 or 88. Glory did well in a box office, different movie, uh, more of a straightforward, traditional Hollywood production of a Civil War movie. But it was very successful and very well received by the critics and, uh, you know, people in the, I mean, I think Denzel Washington received uh, an Academy Award or at least a nomination for that movie. Do you think that that set up the scene or set up the stage where they were able to greenlight Gettysburg? Yes, I think that helped. Yeah, it did. Because you had some big. You, you're, good point, Ken. You you had some, uh, you know, some star actors 
in in that movie. And, and we've talked about this before, guys, in other movies. There are some movies that I think Hollywood is afraid to make. Um, oh, yeah. Movies like this, period Absolutely. pieces like this, historical pieces, sci-fi. There's certain movies that Hollywood is just – I think they cringe. But if you can get enough star actors, which at that time you're looking at um, – uh, you know, Denzel Washington, you were looking at Morgan Freeman was in there. Oh, God, Morgan Freeman. Well, gosh, who's going to narrate the movie if Morgan Freeman's? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, it's not Matthew Broderick. Yeah, Matthew Ferris Bueller. Had enough people in there that. Bueller. Um, Bueller. I think people. <laughs> here we go. You know, that made it safe. You know, that made it safe to make the movie. Glory was telling a story that hadn't been told before. Correct. Correct. I mean, well, but it, it didn't do it didn't do good in the box office because it is wait for it history, and that's what I love about this movie. You've got one female in here who has one line through the entire movie, and she is mocking the Union troops as she goes by. I was going to um, ask who the hell was the female in the movie? I couldn't. That's just remember. it. It was the it was the lady on the side of the road who's mocking the Union troops as they go by. I thought Virginia was in the other direction or something like right. that. I thought the right. battle was in Virginia. You bunch of traitorous bastards. But um <laughs> But you know, you know, but if they had now this would have saved the movie. Um, if they had put a couple of, you know, buxom blondes in here who had some, you know, ridiculous roles of you know and had a love interest with Longstreet or Chamberlain at the you know top of you know little round top that would have sold the movie there would it not have that would have been gone with the wind meets Gettysburg <laughs> Steve's looking Steve's ready to come through the screen at you <laughs> well, well, the facts in, in Jeff's defense so that so what you're saying is uh, uh, Tony Katane's well, movie is what you're saying Tony Katane could have been in this movie Tony Katane could have other been in this movie. under a different set of directors or studio that's what they would have done and you know it that's what I'm saying Ken I say it in sarcasm but seriously that's they, they would have said well how can we write in two female roles here could we have a nurse out there on the battlefield at the top of a little round top taking care of people who have a love interest in Chamberlain who's perfectly fine being married to somebody no no this is not what happens but this is why they you get these crappy movies because we got to fill in a female role so we can get people to go and sell tickets but that's why this movie is perfect is because you don't have any women in this damn movie. All right? <laughs> sort of the same thing with a, as a man that would be king. I mean, it was a great movie until the woman showed up, and then everything went to hell. Ruined it. Absolutely yeah. ruined at that point. What was she there for? This is, and remember, guys, this is man cave movies. This isn't chick flick movies. We don't right. need it's... chicks in a movie. We need guns and fire trucks and <laughs> This is the perfect movie. This is the perfect movie. There's no women in it except for, you know, some mot. And I wish they would have kicked her with a spur or something. <laughs> okay, folks, that sound means, brother, what are we drinking? Mr. Marwinch. What are we drinking today? Jeff, you're up. Oh, oh, I'm yeah, you're up, up, dude. Um, I uh, I stopped by the uh, the Khan's Fine Wine and Spirits tonight and picked up a bottle of the uh, 
Jefferson, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, very small batch. Jefferson Reserve, very nice. Wow. Never even heard of that. Hadn't heard of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Never heard of it? I've never heard well, of Jefferson Reserve. Well, Steve, I have uh, I have plenty here. And uh, right as over. you can see, I've, I've only got a couple of uh, couple of ounces out of it. And um, they have uh, they have a $54 bottle that I decided mm-hmm. not to purchase, um, which is the old, very old, very small batch. But this is, is that the this eight, is, very, is that the 18? Is that the 10 or 12 you've got there? I think the small batch is like 18 or 22 year. How old is that one? Eight or 12? Oh, hell no. Um, they have a they have a 10 year rye whiskey that I Ooh. thought about purchasing. Oh, interesting. But like um, I don't know if the, what you how many years this is. Jefferson's but, a good uh, bourbon, very good bourbon. It is a it's a it's a very good bourbon, and um, it goes down fairly smooth. And then when it gets to your stomach, gets to your stomach, it feels like it is uh, kicking your pancreas. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what the hell is going on down there? What's that? I had somebody kick my pancreas. I don't know. Maybe I need to try this. It was uh, it was an interesting sensation. So I kept drinking, <laughs> and uh, I, I think it just must have you know kicked the crap out of it because uh, I don't feel it anymore. So, but anyways, that's what I'm drinking tonight, and um, I'm sure I will not go through this bottle, Steve, before the next time I see you, uh, because I still have um, I still have a fair liver. amount of the liver to go through. Yeah, my <laughs> I still liver. Have a fair amount of liver. <laughs> yes. All right, go ahead. Uh, Mark, uh, staff officer who has nothing else to do, Slover, what are you drinking today? Since it's hot, yeah. it's crotch pot cooking hot. <laughs> bomb I'm, drinking, I'm drinking Bell's Oberon Ale tonight. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I saw it. I saw it. They just brought the, they just brought the little uh, mini kegs into uh, 21st Amendment today, and I'm like, oh, God, I know what Mark's getting. Love the Bell's Oberon Ale. Wonderful summer I saw beer. My, I saw my first four-pack of beer tonight for over $20. What is it? Wow. I don't know. It was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a darker beer. It might have been a stout. But I thought, I'm not paying 20 bucks for a beer. And if I do, for a four-pack of that... Now, don't get me wrong. I saw some bottles there, you know, some of the uh, you know, 750 milliliter bottles, not 750, I don't know, the wine bottles, whatever they measure out these days. Um, you know, those things were going for damn near $25. Wow. I mean, I don't know what's in those things, but man, seriously, wow. I need to be, somebody better throw a chick in the car with me on the way home, <laughs> all right? If I'm paying $25 for a bottle of beer. I mean <laughs> that or I get a secret toy surprise. My toy surprise better be a damn happy ending, okay? That's what my what toy surprise is. Well, like, you get like you said, it's hot and I wanted something cool and refreshing. And you probably saw I had this full when I started. Zima. But it was my standard homemade vanilla vodka oh, God. and caffeine-free Diet Coke. <laughs> you know, he ruined that Diet Coke with the homemade vanilla vodka. 
Very tasty, very smooth. I enjoyed it all. I'm glad it wasn't Mike's light heart lemonade. I'm still trying to get my head around that one. I thought about that. I've still got a couple bottles left, but I, I wanted something oh. different. I'm thinking next time I might be orange grape Jefferson through the bottle. Let me save this podcast. <laughs> all right. I am having some Barley Islands Dirty Helen. It is a brown ale brewed here locally in Noblesville, Indiana. Yeah, it's very good. I, I highly recommend it. Um, I'm a big fan of um, brown ales and stouts, anything dark. And this one is very good. Uh, it's got a little bit of a bite. So if you're used to the more malty brown ales, this one may not be your uh, your cup of tea, but I do like it. It's got a little bit of a kick. Do like it. And I am also chasing it with some Basil Hayden's. Uh, oh, wow. That's yeah. Put a dent in that bottle. Well, hell. And that's why you're, that's why you're speaking the way you are. <laughs> okay, so we're moving on right now. We're Actually, you know what? We're going to go on to clips. Because... We're going to take, take an intermission so Steve can grab his lime shovel. All right, so we're going to talk about clips, folks. We're back to uh, – we're done talking about beer and good Kentucky bourbon, so we're going to talk about clips. And this movie has got some good ones. I have tried to pick some of the really good ones in the movie and some that are personal favorites of ours. And I am going to go with the first one here. This is essentially, and I promised Mark I would get a, uh, a Buford clip uh, for this movie. And we're going to go with this one here. This is um, actually before the first fight. This is when Buford's cavalry comes in. Um, he knows there are Confederates in front of him. He realizes that there's a lot of Confederates in front of him, and he realizes that he has to do essentially a major defense of this area before the Rebs get the high ground. And I'm going to go ahead and play that now. You know what's going to happen here in the morning? Sir. The old damn Rebel Army's going to be here. They'll move through this town, occupy these hills on the other side, and our people get here, Lee will have the high ground. They'll be the devil to pay. The high ground. And he was like that through the whole movie. Very dramatic, very intense. Well, but he it wasn't the whole movie. I mean, he just, he had a very specific moment in that movie. Well, and he had a small role in the battle. And he had a small role in the movie. And it worked out very well. And it was perfect to have him as the role of Buford, um, Sam Elliott. Um, and he was he was basically there and he was gone. And you missed him at some point because he is he is he is great to watch on film. Next clip. I, I'm only throwing this one out there, and this is one that's for my wife because I always use this line on my wife or even on my uh, child when I when I uh, when I'm going out. My wife will always say, uh, "Be careful." And this is the uh, this is the response I give her. Take care of yourself, Colonel. Don't worry about me, sir. I'm the soul of caution. All right, that's for you, Deb. That's it's a great line. It's a great line. And uh, the guy that responded, who was the soul of caution, he played um, uh, was Colonel Devin, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And that was also uh, Craig Johnson in Tombstone. Here's another one here. I like this one, and part of it is part of this is for you, Mark, because I know you can appreciate the um, uh, the line in there. Don't call me Lawrence. Don't call me Lawrence. I'm your brother. 
Well, just be careful about the name business in front of the man, all right? Just because you're my brother, it looked like favoritism. God almighty, General Meade's got his own son as his aide-de-camp. Well, that's different. Generals can do anything. I think quite so much like God on Earth as a general on a battlefield. <laughs> yes. Daniels really did a pretty good job. It wasn't over the top, but he did a pretty good job of main accent. Yeah, and I thought he did a very good job of also someone who is new to command. Right. Because he had just taken command of the 20th. And so there are moments there where you see him kind of struggling with what should I do and how should I do it. And he does it in a very understated but effective way. Yes. Uh, Daniels was probably one of the better actors, if not one of the best ones in here, in terms of how he portrayed that that particular character. He did, It was very well done. And I yeah. really did enjoy his performance and the fact that, like I said, he grew his own beard. I, I have to pop in, too, to say that, you know, remind everybody that although he didn't actually, I don't believe he actually got a nomination, there's a lot of talk that he should be you know, up for an Academy Award. A number of prominent reviewers said, you know, his, the acting that he did, the way that he portrayed this character deserved that. And I was reminded of an ironic fact just Saturday showing his range, Jeff Daniels' range, which is, I believe it was the next year he went on to what was, I think, his biggest box office success, which is Dumb and Dumber. Yes. On AMC. Yep. <laughs> Slightly different character. But Just a bit. Nonetheless, the guys, you can't say this, uh, Jeff Daniels doesn't have the range and he's a serious actor. And a comic. Right. Well, Steve, to your point, if, if it's not Stephen Lang, it is definitely Jeff Daniels who... Um, is is the best actor in this movie. You know, Jeff Daniels has far more screen time than Stephen Lang does, but I agree. It is he does such an impressive job, and there's a point in the battle where he ends up getting shot and uh, you know saved by his um, his sword um, sheath, and he he limps throughout the rest of the movie. Right. And in every scene, he's always, you know, he's one of those professional actors. And, you know, and it goes to, you know, the, the director and the production of this movie, which I think is just outstanding because there's a, there, there are some things that maybe aren't so cohesive throughout the movie. But, the, you know, when it comes to the main actors, there's a lot of cohesion in what they're doing, it, it seems, at all times. He seems to embody. And, and, and he took very serious – and all, I think all the actors took very serious their roles in this movie because they were portraying historical figures. And they did, I think, incredible justice, at least the main actors. And I wanted to say that in this movie, one of the things that works for me is all of the main actors do a top-notch job because they took these roles very serious. Um, but another thing that I think this movie does that is outstanding as regards to the actors is as they're sitting there on the screen having their conversations, you have levels of activity that is going on behind these actors at all times. And when I say levels of activities, I mean you have things that are going on behind them, and then there are times you've got things going on behind the person that's going has something going on behind them. That you know whether it's men marching in the distance. Um, or it is, you know, men just fixing wagon wheels or cooking or cleaning or doing something. There are levels of things that are going on throughout the movie. And the, I really appreciate the timing that it takes for the director to have all of this timed out to go according to plan at these scenes. 
and it just makes you feel like you are at times in a real camp. Something I was very impressed, I think you probably, I'm, I'm suspecting you, you're the same, is they did a very good job of putting the number of extras they had to use, where like when the Pickett's charge scene was being set up and the troops are coming out of the woods and the camera pans back and gets this, you know, shot of, you know, rank on rank for, you know, a, a, a mile out. Nowadays, I think a lot of people are kind of jaded by CGI. I'll, I'll just throw out Lord of the Rings as an example. We need hordes and hordes of orcs and riders. And they just CGI it, and it's just taken for granted. Okay, it's great. It's big. This was done with a similar feel, but 20 years ago, 10 years before CGI really came in commonly. So I, I have to give kudos to their use of the cinematography to show that and all the work that went into coordinating those big, massive scenes. And, and that's a credit to the reenactors, because as far as with, and when you go to the major national events, and I've been to a number of them, where we had 18,000 guys at Antietam one year, you know, when, you're, when, when you were putting battalions online, what you saw in Pickett's Charge is exactly how you're trying to put a battalion online. So when the guys were told, form up for an advance, they're doing what, what you do as a reenactor. So it's second nature to, to good reenactors to do that sort of work. All right, next clip. This is right before the Battle of Little Round Top. And, uh, folks, you want to see a good battle scene? This is it. You want to rent Gettysburg or buy the movie, better yet. Just for this battle scene, because this is really one of the more, and again, it's not blood flying around or body parts flying around. It's just a very well done battle scene. I mean, you have to admit, it's one of the best ones done. Chamberlain's going around among the troops and he's, you know, doing his little speech and trying to buff up everybody. And there's these two brothers that are in the 20th Maine that he talks to. And I just love this clip, so I'm going to go ahead and shoot that one now. Boys, you're the Merrill brothers, am I right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, boys, why aren't you uh, on the ground? Well, sir, I can't shoot worth the darn lying down. Never could. Bill, neither. We like to fight standing. Well, then I suggest you find a thicker tree. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is. When you watch the scene, they built up these breastworks, you know, rocks, and, you know, and these two, these two Hanyaks are standing there just literally right behind this, like, little sapling. And I thought it was a cool little scene. But this scene here, the way that they shot it and set this up, and they spent a lot of time um, creating dollies and things to get this, this shots right in this um, at, at, for this part of the movie. And this part of the movie is pretty lengthy, too. And it, yes. it establishes, I think it does a pretty good job of establishing what the 20th Maine went through at this time. It was wave after wave after wave of assault. Um, from the Confederate troops, and the Confederate troops keep moving around a little more to the right um, to to try to get because I think they know that this is it, this is the end of the line, and the way that they set this scene up here, they have different levels of shots. The director in this movie, and I I, I know I don't know if we want to get to cinematography now, but it this is the perfect example of why the cinematography or why this movie works really well is you have the director and the uh, of cinematography who uses different 
types of shots. He uses wide angles throughout the movie, which really brings out the breadth of and depth of the movie. But he also uses close-in shots, and there's some shots during this part where you are at, like, muzzle length, and the muzzle is going off right in front of the camera as the dolly goes right by it. This is an example of how why this movie, I think, needs to be seen by everybody because it is, in my opinion, almost perfect. You know, you get the sense after Chamberlain, you know, when he says, you know, they're going to fix bayonets, everybody's like, it's the oh shit moment. <laughs> yep. It is the, exactly. you see everybody's like, what? What yeah. they fix bayonets? It's one of the key parts of the movie. It, and, and I think the way that they they, they tie in the photography, um, the they, they set the scene up, and the music that goes along with it, the way that it, it enters in and exit and hits at pivotal times, it's almost one of those perfect scenes in a movie. And I would say it, it ranks up there as one of the top five perfect scenes in a movie. I agree. I agree. 100%. All right, Mark, are you back? I'm back. This one's for you, buddy. I'm going to play this one right now. All right. You call yourselves Americans, but you're really just transplanted Englishmen. Look at your names. Lee, Hood, Longstreet, Jackson, Stewart. My people were Dutch. <laughs> Amen, brother. My people were Dutch. <laughs> All right, folks, that, that that's a personal shot for my buddy there. Thank you. Nobody can appreciate that but him. But that's We've been knocking around this corner of the globe since New Amst- New York was New Amsterdam, so I love that. I, I love that line every time. My people are Dutch. Yeah. He, he's very pointed about that. Absolutely. All right. Um, I want to play this one here real quick. This is, a little po- uh, this is a point where we talked about earlier about causes. And Armistead was talking to Longstreet, and he said um, – you know, who would ever believe that the, the cause would have lasted this long? And, our, and Longstreet at this point is, he's not interested in causes anymore. He just wants to win the war. And I want to play this one right now because it's kind of a, an important part of the movie. Yeah, I don't think on that too much anymore. This only causes victory. This war comes as a nightmare. You pick your nightmare side, you just put your head down and you win. <laughs> Old gloomy Pete. That's one of the best quotes of the movie. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Well, by what? then you're not fighting for for to free the slaves. You're not fighting for Virginia. You're fighting for the unit. You're fighting for the regiment. You're fighting for the man next to you. Um, and you just you know the only way to end this is to you're either going to die or this war is going to end one way or another. And I think that that really does a great job of addressing. And it's it's not one of those anti-war things. It's it's not a post-Vietnam movie type of dig. It's just you just pick your nightmares, you just put your head down, you get through them the best you can. All right, this next one I want to do, I put this one in there because uh, I'm not a huge fan of uh, Martin Sheen. I just don't like some of the movies he's been in. I don't like his portrayal, but I have to say, he nailed Lee, and he really did a good job of it because uh, Lee was um, – Pretty much of a father figure to a lot of the guys in the army, but um, this was probably a good rendition of uh, Robert E. Lee getting really pissed off. Perhaps I did not make myself clear. Well, sir, this must be made very clear. 
You, sir, with your cavalry, are the eyes of this army. Without your cavalry, we are made blind. That has already happened once. It must never, never happen again. Sir, since I no longer hold the general... I have told you there is no time for that. There is no time. What, what I really like about that scene on many levels is, first off, no one knows what was said between Lee and Stewart. There's no record. And I, I watch that scene and I go, yep, that's probably what happened. And secondly is that, that scene and a couple of other scenes with Lee, just those are examples of what a good leader is. That is just a superlative um, presentation of leadership yes. and commanding your men. He, he addresses the issue. He explains it to Stuart. He, and he, he explains to him, I know your qualities. I know this will never happen again. This matter is closed. I, I find that to be, if I was going to show, um, um, if I was going to teach a leadership class, that would be a scene I would show people because too many people do not understand leadership, and that is exemplary leadership right there. Yeah. All right. I want to move on to uh, we talked a little bit about it was the soundtrack, and I am going to tell you right now this is uh, a stellar soundtrack. This is in the uh, – it's my top five. Got on my, I've got it on uh, CD. I've got it on my iPod. It is one of the greatest orchestral pieces that you're ever going to hear, at least in my opinion. I mean, it is a great soundtrack. Randy Edelman, who was the composer of this music when it was um, scripted to be a miniseries, he turned it down because he said he didn't want to have to come up with the amount of music it was going to take to um, – to to fill the movie or fill the miniseries, mm -hmm. but he reconsidered when it was going to be a movie. It was going to be shorter. Um, this, <clears throat> you know, the the aforementioned um, little round top scene, the music um, which is titled um, "Battle for Little Round Top" um, that accompanies that scene, aside from the main title, is is probably the, one of the best songs on the whole CD or in the whole movie. And it is it is sweeping and majestic. It is you, you have high and low parts throughout the song, and the crescendos happen at pivotal points in the movie, and they do a fantastic job of timing the music and the key elements in this movie together, um, where the trumpets come blaring in at the right moments, and you know at, at you know, when I'm watching little, the battle for Little Round Top and I'm hearing and this, even though you are seeing and hearing the, the battle going on, you're also hearing the music that accompanies it. And, and I, will, I will get chills at times because I can get caught up in that scene so much um, because it, it, is, it is all woven together so well. And we had, we had mentioned the, the intro to the movie where they have the montage. Uh, the main theme of the movie is, is, is out of this world. Yeah, the other part of the music that I really like is the, 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 the very effective use of period music. They had Second Maryland, Fife and Drum. They used Camp Chase. Um, they used reenacting uh, musical units 
throughout the movie, and they use them very well to give you that period feel of the marching music, of the celebratory music, and combined with the orchestral music, it, it gives this soundtrack and this movie a completely different feel from most uh, most movies of, of its type. I agree, you know, especially in the main title where you where you where you can just you, you hear the symphony, but you also can see the drummers on the field of battle playing the drums and you hear that prominently in in the soundtrack. Um, and you hear the fife and you he does a great job of 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 including and there there are certain compositions that are almost rehashed and slowed down um that you heard at a higher speed earlier on in the film or in the soundtrack um where they just put a different um uh timing to it and draw it out. I think they, they, they rework some of the music very well. But something I also want to point out is there are times in the movie where they don't use music, which I think is great. When the Confederates are coming online... Um, it's just the drummers. Just it, it beating, is. Beating it's, the cadence. It's just the drummers beating the cadence, like you said. Um, and there is no music. And all you are hearing and seeing is the units come online, and you're hearing the clanking of the canteens and the ammo belts. And all you're doing is watching that. And they chose not to put any music there, which I thought was an excellent choice for just keeping the music out. And that that went on for a, a couple of minutes where you're seeing the, the, the troops walk out of the, the woods and take their positions, and you're just watching this. And there's not a lick of music to go along with it except, as you Mark, Mark said, uh, the drum. Um, beating the cadence. Steve, I know you've got opinions on this music. Uh, love it. It's one of my favorites. The music during the Battle of Little Round Top is, to me, the, the best part of the music. This is one of those soundtracks where you can pop it in and you can listen to this anywhere. It is some of the greatest music that you're ever going to hear. All right, folks, this is it. We are going to do our Man Cave movie review on this one. So I am going to turn it over to my, uh, let's see, I'm going to mix up a little bit. I'm going to go over to my good and dear friend. Uh, Jeff, does my face make this beard look fake Muncie? What do you think about this movie? I think that this movie is one of the most underrated movies in, in the last, I'm going to say, 30 to 40 years. It it is it it hasn't been given its due, um, but the 25 million viewers the first night that it was on um, cable TV I think is a testament for how much people have come to either either hear about it or appreciate it and and want to view it. This has so many things going for. There's so many more positives than than minuses to this movie, um, because of the, the the level of actors, the the primary actors and even secondary actors. Um, the soundtrack is outstanding, and in the cinematography, which we didn't touch too much on, with the the different wide angle shots that they chose, um, mixed with the the close in shots and the personal. Um, the personal scenes that they chose to show, which which made you feel like you were right there with them, um, phenomenal. Um, and the hiring of the reenactors to do all this instead of instead of hiring um, just regular actors, or at the time I don't think even though CFGI was was available, just the orchestration of all of that together. I I am going to give this movie I'm going to give it a nine. 
man caves drawings. Very good. I agree. Um, I'm going to shoot it over to my other good and dear friend, our special guest commentator, Ken. It's just Arm Roney. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, understand that reference, folks. What, what Jeff said holds up. Uh, it is underrated, although it holds up over the years on cable, on rentals, on DVD. It's continuing to have success. At the time it came out, I was very impressed by it. I still am. It does have the, like it or not, in the movie world, once you get past about an hour and a half to two hours, that's a killer for a lot of people. And you can't, if you're flipping through the channels and you come onto this thing, just start, and you got to think long and hard. I'm going to sit here and watch the whole thing. Yep. It's, but it takes four hours to tell the story. I like that. I like to reward Hollywood when they don't chop it down just to make it fit, and then you got some garbled mess. Given all that, if I have to give it a number, I'm going to give it an 8.8. Awesome. Very good. I'm going to go over to my other good and dear friend, Mark. I am the hardest-working staff officer in the Union Army Slover. I did not pose. I never posed. It, it is truly a labor of love for everybody involved. You see it on the screen. It is an epic. And to Ken's point, you know, you have to put four hours into this to tell this effectively. And I think that they treated the source material, the book, The Killer Angels, with tremendous respect. They treat the subject matter with tremendous respect. It is not a documentary. It is not meant to be. It is a character study, and it is to give you a taste and a an understanding of the period and the pivotal, arguably one of the pivotal battles of the Civil War. I think it accomplishes all of those things. I am impressed when you put 13,000 reenactors, a lot of actors, and scenes that require choreography, whether they're close-in shots of two or three people or masses amount of people, that they pulled this off, and they pulled it off so well that this is one of those movies that, to to echo Jeff and Ken, it, it's a little, it's an unknown classic in some respects. It, it is a gem. It is, it, it will it will always resonate with people because it also reflects uh, a, an important part of American history that people are attracted to. That's evident by, if you've ever been to the battlefield, the amount of people who come, not only Americans, but people from all walks of life from all across the world. And I, I'm like my fellow uh, reviewers. I have to give this a nine. There are things that are not accurate, but those inaccuracies are, by and large, overshadowed by the accuracies and the attempts to educate people to go and learn more. If you want to read a good book about it, go read Stephen Sears' Gettysburg. If you want to, if you want to get a flavor and an understanding and a hint of what the Civil War was like, go watch Gettysburg, and they do a magnificent job, and they're to be applauded for it. I have to agree with Mark. Uh, I, Gosh, how do I follow up with that? This movie is one of my favorites. I have to be honest with you, I, I'm going above and beyond the Call of Duty. I'm giving it a nine and a half because it's just a really well-done movie. All right, all right, so we've done, let's see, we've done music, we've done clips, we've pretty much done it all, and probably time to close it. Sounds good. All right. All right, folks, thank you for joining us for Episode 19, where we talked about that 
great and fantastic period movie called Gettysburg. Stay tuned for us next week where we're going to talk about a movie that we're not going to tell you about because you know what? If we do, we probably won't end up reviewing it. So it's going to be a big surprise. So that's for all of us. It's going to be <laughs> it's going to be a big surprise for all of us. So this is me, your host, Steve Michaels, and my good and dear friend, Mark. I'm really not a lazy staff officer working for a corps commander. Slover. Steve, all science trembles at the sear and logic of your fiery intellect. <laughs> As it should. As it should. Very nice. like that. And also saying adieu and farewell is our other good and dear friend, Jeff. Does my face make this beer look fake? Muncie. There are times... When a podcaster's life does not matter. Bravo. Wow. Are you talking about me there? Because I matter. I don't know if you matter. Only if the shoe fits. You matter, Steve. Without you, this podcast couldn't happen. All right. And we're going to also say adieu, farewell, and kumbaya to my other good and dear friend and special guest, commentator in red shirt, Ken. It's just an arm. Rony. Well, as, as the new guy, all I'm doing while I'm hanging in here is fatting for my rats. Rats, I'm telling you. <laughs> I think I held up my rats. Your what? <laughs> what? Rats. Your what? My rats. <laughs> I love C. Thomas House. Look, what? Your what? I love you guys. You know, you guys can pull it. That's, that's the great thing about this show is I surprise you and you just even surprise me more with your with your final <laughs> quotes from the movie so that's it folks thank you for joining us i hope you enjoyed the show this is it and we say farewell to next week ciao It's your turn. Please save us. I am having right now. I'm having a uh, a delicious brown ale by the Barley Isle. Uh, Jesus, I'm having right now a delicious brown ale. That's it. All right, I am having Barley Iron. Jesus, Barley Island, dirty. He's had twelve bottles of Barley Island beer. I've That's why he three, can't talk. Three friggin'. <laughs> and take two on your beer selection. You know what? We Barley didn't have a blooper iron. clip in the last one. That's what this one's for. Yeah, what the f*** was that about? We didn't have anything. We were perfect. That's what the yeah, f*** because, because Well, I blame Muncie because we were perfect. Ken in it. That's the thing. Those that's two that's right. Brought me. I ruined to have a civil discussion. Apparently, I come along, and it's like Jerry Lewis night here at the telethon, all right? <laughs> ah. Oh my god. All right, take two. Michaels, what you drinking? All right, three, two, one.